0: by then, and and others around, in Matthew 28, and he says, Go ye therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Was Jesus introducing some brand new, cutting-edge methodology of redeeming and rescuing the world? In other words, is discipleship, or making disciples, is that merely a New Testament phenomenon? And I asked this question, I was just kind of battling this out with God, and, you know, he gave me a very clear answer, No way! In other words, this New Testament phenomenon really has Old Testament background, Old Testament framework. And so that's what we're going to do today. I'm just going to kind of lead through a series of of scriptures that God just kind of put some pieces together in my own own heart and mind. So if you have some paper, feel free to start writing because we go all the way back to the beginning. All right. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. So we're going to go from Genesis to Malachi, if you can believe it. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 you probably already know this without even looking at it. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. If you've gotten to the table of contents, you've gone a little too far. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when you're there, say amen. amen. Alright, the Bible says, this is the sixth day of the creation week. And the Bible says, Then God said, Let us make man in what? our image, according to our likeness. So here, from the very beginning, God is in the business of making disciples. You be like me. And he makes Adam and Eve, male and female, in his image. In fact, if you just turn a few chapters over, Adam takes on this legacy, and in chapter 5, Genesis chapter 5, Adam procreates. In Genesis chapter 5, verses 1, 2, and 3, notice how this is all stated. Genesis 5, when you're there, say amen. Amen. All right. The Bible says, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Okay, so there's the reference to God being the original disciple maker. Okay. In verse 2, he created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind. In the day they were created, now notice how Adam picks up this legacy. Verse 3, and Adam lived 130 years, woohoo, and begot a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. Now, this is very interesting because you know that Adam actually had two other boys, right? Cain and Abel. But here, there's, there's something more. Uh, when, when the Bible introduces this, This progeny in his own likeness, it's not just talking about the resemblance of appearance, but the resemblance of a character, the resemblance of a spiritual commitment, because if you look at the last verse of chapter 4, last verse of chapter 4, this is after the whole Cain and Abel snafu. In verse 26 it says, And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. In other words, it was something that was being passed on. It wasn't the the resemblance of a face. It was the resemblance of a spiritual commitment. Seth and all of those that that came after, they were calling on the name of God. And for that reason, they were called sons of God. Very interesting to me that from the very beginning, discipleship, discipleship took place in the context of one's own intimate relationships. Discipleship took place in the context of one's immediate surroundings. Let's get very specific. In the family. It began in the family. In other words, it was a generational legacy. From father to son. From generation to generation. Do we follow this today? Yes or no? And this is from the very beginning. Let's see how this pans out as the story of the Old Testament continues. Go a few more chapters. Chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, we are introduced to a character. His name is Father Abraham, we like to call him. But in chapter 12, he's known as Abram. Genesis 12, verse 1. When you're there, say, I'm there. How did Abraham experience discipleship? Verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will, what? show you. In other words, God is in the disciple making business again. Hey, you get out. Follow me because I'm going to show you where to go, all right? So Abraham himself is a disciple, but notice he's called to make disciples. Look in verse three, the result of him following God. Verse three, God promises, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the what? all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now what's going on here? Is God just kind of picking and choosing his favorites? What God is doing is he's essentially choosing or discipling a few who will bless and disciple the rest. And notice the vehicle in which that discipleship takes place. According to verse 3, it's all the families of the earth will be blessed. Very interesting to me. And Abraham took this call very seriously. He said, how are all the families of the earth going to be blessed through me? Obviously, uh, in the grand prophetic scheme, it was through his lineage, through Jesus Christ. Okay, we can understand that. But, but in his, what he could influence himself, if he knew that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through him, he started with his own family. Go to chapter 18, Genesis chapter 18. Notice what God says about Abram now. Genesis chapter 18, and I believe it's verse 19 that we're looking for. Genesis 18, verse 19. You remember the story? Three visitors show up, uh, you know, on Abram's property. And these three visitors of, are of divine origin. And they're, they're talking amongst each other, and God says, Should I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do? You know, he's about to go check out Sodom and Gomorrah and see what's really going on down there. And in verse 19, notice what he says about Abraham. He, he's rationalizing with himself, saying, no, Abraham, he has to know. He's my friend. In fact, notice what qualifies him as his friend. Verse 19, For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him wow. Maybe your Bible says, for I have chosen him because he commands his household in this way and that way. In other words, the Bible is saying that God knew Abraham, God chose Abraham because he found in him great potential to pass along from generation to generation what it really is to follow the Lord. This is powerful to me. And this is something that Abraham did. This is something that he was faithful to. In fact, when you read uh, just kind of the travel log of Abraham in the book of Genesis, you notice that wherever Abraham goes, he ends up leaving something behind. Do you remember what he left behind? Well, an altar. Wherever Abraham traveled, wherever God led him, he, he built an altar. And after he left, that altar would remain. What would Abraham and his household do around that altar? They would worship the Lord. It was a time for family worship. Wow. A lost art in this generation. A specific time in which everyone in the household knew the God from whom all blessings flowed, And it was here at this family altar that that they knew God, but even after they left, we're told that Canaanite travelers, heathen peoples, would come and see this and recognize what Abraham did with his family, and they too would worship the living God. What? Do you realize the power of family worship? (laughs) Has not just power for your immediate household, but it's discipleship through demonstration. It's discipleship through a legacy left behind. A family that worships together has great witness and power in the community. This is powerful to me. And here, what we see again in the experience of Abraham, is it was from generation... To generation now go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6 we've already mentioned this today but in Deuteronomy chapter 6 I want you to lay your eyes on this this is what's called the great commandment Deuteronomy chapter 6 this is what Jesus was quoting from when someone questioned him and said hey Jesus what is the greatest commandment right what is the most important of them all and Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6 When you're there, say amen. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 6. It wasn't just through the occasional family worships that Abraham had, but God now wanted to to extend this influence of discipleship, not just on on occasional family worships, but moment by moment in the family experience. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul and with all your strength, and these words which I command today shall be where? In your heart. In other words, hey, loving God isn't something that's superimposed. (laughs) You can't just flip a switch and expect people to love God. Let this command be in your heart, right? Uh, Love God from the heart with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then the very next verse, verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. In other words, every action that your hand is put to, it ought to be dictated by a love for God with all your heart. Every direction that your attention is gazing, it ought to be directed by a love for God with all your heart. And this happens as we take seriously the commission to teach diligently these commandments to our children. And how do you teach them diligently? According to verse 7, it's not just, uh, you know, 7 o'clock every night, although that would be important. It would be when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and everything in between. Right? When you lie down, and when you rise up, and everything in between. Wow so discipleship, this this, uh, great commandment really I would submit is the foundation for the great commission. The great commission says go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's far and away. But it's only founded upon a, a framework of understanding the great commandment where we start at square one. Where we start at home. And the great commandment is really giving us the starting point for truly making disciples of all nations. How can we expect to make disciples of a stranger if we have no concern for the disciples right under our noses, right? And so God is calling from the very beginning a model of discipleship. Some would call it family discipleship or family mentorship, and it's a model that's 24-7, right? This isn't, this isn't something to put on or put off. It's it's simply making good on the relationships that God has trusted to us. It's turning those ordinary moments into teaching moments. It's turning everything about our everyday lives into an extraordinary experience with the living God. Wow. That's kind of extreme when she says, no, it's, that's real discipleship. <laughs> that's really loving God with all and so I, I realize that even now, some of us are thinking to ourselves, well, I don't even have a family. I'm not even old enough to drive yet. How am I supposed to? You know? <laughs> or maybe some of us, my kids are long gone. How am I, what, is, what application, what relevance is this for me? Don't worry. We'll see how God expands the understanding of family discipleship here in just a moment. Because uh, what I want you to get is just the principle of this, that it starts with a family relationship. It starts in the home that as we take seriously loving God with all, that we will demonstrate this in all. Okay? And so, realize that our ability to mentor these young people that are in our spheres of influence, we'll use general terms now, discipling others in our sphere of influence is contingent, completely contingent upon the experience that we ourselves have received first. We've talked about this before. We can only give what we first received. That's why, you know, verse 7 of teaching these diligently to your children is preceded by verses 4 through 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. It starts from the inside out. Do we follow today, yes or no? Yeah? In other words, if I expect those in my sphere of influence to love God with all their hearts, it can only happen as I love God with all my heart if I expect those in my sphere of influence to bind the love of God on every action and on every attention, it can only happen as I've bound the love of God on every action of mine and every attention of mine. And so this is the call of of 24-7 family discipleship because committing to disciple our family, committing to disciple our sphere of influence, ultimately, it's a commitment to be discipled day by day. It's a commitment to be a disciple ourselves. Alright, so here, the children of Israel, they're, they're entering into the promised land, and they're being reminded, okay, it starts at home, it starts at home. But later in Israel's history, there is a new phenomenon. Actually, if you start finding this little book, it's, I guess it's not so little, Second Kings. Can you find Second Kings? Second Kings chapter 2. And what I want to just introduce here is a term that the Old Testament kind of brings out of nowhere and it assumes that the people that are reading it understand what it's all about. 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings, if you hit the Chronicles, you've gone too far. 2 Kings chapter 2. If you're there, say amen. Amen. Okay. 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 2. There's an individual, Elijah. You know him? He was a prophet of God. Most of his experience is recorded in 1 Kings, 1 Kings 17-19, through etc. Et but Elijah has a disciple, his name is Elisha, right? And he and Elisha, they're going from town to town because Elijah's time is about to be wrapped up. He's about to be picked up by a chariot of fire. Woo! Awesome ride to roll in, okay? And in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 2, notice there's just a particular phrase here that I want to catch. I'm sorry. It's in verse 3. Okay. Well, we'll start in verse 2. Okay. Then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. Oh, hey, he's going to go somewhere. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. That's the commitment of a disciple, one who follows. Okay. So they went down to Bethel. Verse 3. Now, the sons of the what? Prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, etc., etc. That's the phrase I wanted to catch. The sons of the prophets were at Bethel. Elijah and Elisha were kind of traveling from town to town to visit what's called the sons of the prophets. This was kind of a new phenomenon. These were almost like guilds or camps or schools of the prophets. What happened? What happened in Israel's history that? that instead of just focusing on the home-based model of discipleship, they actually began this kind of a, a supplementary or an auxiliary institution called the Sons of Discipleship or the School of Discipleship. It's interesting because really Elijah and Elisha were living at a time of widespread apostasy. The people of God, generally speaking, had lost sight of who the true God was, and they they had a tendency to worship false gods. They had a tendency to worship the idol of Baal, etc., and in the face of this widespread apostasy, God used Elijah to kind of rekindle these these schools of the prophets, and I would say not to substitute for home-based discipleship, but to complement. Do you understand what I mean? Uh, Let me just kind of get on a sidebar here, because a lot of times I've, you know, working in youth ministry in the past, I I, kind of run into this mentality where uh, parents will just kind of drop off kids at children's ministry events or programs and expect their kids to be discipled by someone, somehow, when the effort isn't being pushed at home as well. We need to value our children's ministries. We need to value our youth ministries, but only as they complement and support the discipleship efforts from the home. Are we okay with that? Yeah? And so our our academy. Awesome. Children's choir. Awesome. Pathfinders, Adventurers. Amazing. Sabbath schools. Yes. Youth group. Praise the Lord. But they do not substitute for the model of discipleship that starts at home. They complement support and strengthen. And so let's get that perspective right. And so the sons of the prophets, the schools of the prophets, they were to amplify the efforts that were taking place from home-based discipleship. There was needed intensity because of the widespread apostasy at that time. And so God used Elijah, God used Elisha to re-educate the people of what it was to truly follow him. And so these schools of discipleship, these schools of the prophets, really began to, to, uh, to flourish. And as a result, I would suggest that Elijah and Elisha were modeling another form of generation to generation. It wasn't just father, biological father to biological son, but it was spiritual father to spiritual son. Do you follow this, yes or no? Elijah, he was a spiritual father to so many. In fact, one king of Israel, when, uh, when Elisha was going to pass away, he said, oh, the, the, my father, my father. He was calling the prophet his father. Why? Why? Because he was recognizing him as a mentor. And so this idea of father, son, yes, it started in the home, but it even included more than just the home. So maybe you don't have a child living with you at home, Friend, you may be a spiritual father or mother for a spiritual son or daughter. God is calling for generation to generation discipleship. And here Elijah is kind of the forerunner of this in the Old Testament, at least in this period of of Israel's history. And what's interesting to me is that if you remember correctly Elijah's experience, he didn't always roll like that. He didn't always have a disciple trailing along behind him. Do you remember this? In fact, when he was on Mount Carmel, he felt like he was the only one. And when Jezebel was running for him, trying to kill him, he felt like he was the only one. And when he ran to Mount Horeb, seeking that his life would be over, he said, God, I've had enough. Jezebel is out for me. All the prophets of Baal, and I'm the only one left. And God speaks to him in a still small voice. You remember this, 1 Kings chapter 19. He speaks to him in a still small voice. says, what are you doing here? <laughs> That's the question that God says, what doest thou here, according to the King James. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, God gives him three tasks, and they're all about discipleship. Go anoint this king of Syria. He will lead the rest of this push against the prophets of Baal here. Go anoint this king of Israel because he will do what you couldn't finish. Go anoint Elisha. You feel like you're all alone? Well, start investing in other people. Woo! Elijah was on his own verge of apostasy. And God calls him back by saying, go disciple people. Go make disciples. And it's interesting to me that Elijah is used... Later on, not just a disciple Elisha, but now he's raising up schools of discipleship all over the place, from city to city. This is radical to me. Because a lot of times we are on the verge of our own apostasy, thinking we are, oh, what am I doing this for? And God wants to call you back and say, go disciple somebody. Go disciple somebody. And he's using that family model, which I think it's interesting. It's called Sons of the Prophets. Right? That's a familial term, sons of the prophets. And so now we see that, oh, generation to generation, this family discipleship isn't just about biological father to biological son. Nor is it just about uh, generation of older age and generation of younger age, but maybe generation of mature experience and generation of less mature experience. Do you follow that today? And Elijah kind of spearheaded this himself. Now later on in the Psalms, you kind of get these ideas. You can write this down, Psalm 71, verses 17 and 18. The psalmist says, hey, even to my gray hairs, I I won't go down until I declare the goodness of God to the next generation. (laughs) Psalm 145, verse 4. I will declare it from generation to generation. All all these kinds of things. The psalmists pick up these themes as well. But go with me now to Malachi. Okay, Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, right before Matthew. Malachi chapter 4. And we see how Elijah becomes almost like this uh, anticipatory term for what God has in store for his people. Malachi chapter 4. When you're there, say, I found it. Okay, not yet. That's right. Took me a while to... Okay, here we go. Malachi chapter 4. Like I said, it's right before Matthew. Malachi chapter 4. These are the closing verses of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. When you're there, say amen. Okay. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. The Bible says, Behold. That's That's the biblical way of saying, check it out. Behold, I will send you who? Elijah Elijah, the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now we know that Elijah was translated. He was picked up by a chariot of fire, so he never actually saw the grave. Uh, But what God is saying is not that he's going to send an embodiment of Elijah here. He's he's talking about uh, sending uh, the spirit and power of Elijah, the same message of Elijah, and in fact, we see, historically speaking, uh, when John the Baptist's birth is foretold in Luke chapter 1, uh, the angel Gabriel actually references this prophecy. It says, look, hey, 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 uh, he's going to be filled with the spirit and power of Elijah to turn hearts to God. But, let's keep reading here, and, and notice how this anticipation grows. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of who the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest i come and strike the earth with a curse now this prophecy has deep theological significance and we're not going to plumb the depths of it right now because like i said this has application to john the baptist he was a forerunner before christ came the first time and he prepared people's hearts, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? In many ways, John the Baptist turned people's hearts so that they were ready for the coming of Jesus the first time. And in, in end-time application, God is looking for a people who will rise up with that same power, that same message, to turn people's hearts to God before the second coming of Jesus. Okay? The same kind of, of message that you read about in Revelation chapter 14, those three angels feared God. Give him glory for the hour of his judgment is come. Those kinds of things. Yes, we see that prophetically speaking. And so we're talking about, ultimately, we're talking about turning of, of our hearts to the Father's heart. Okay? But could it be that part of the fulfillment of Elijah's message could be a turning of generation to generation? Could it be that that the same Elijah, that spearheaded discipleship, the the revival that was needed in the face of apostasy through discipling other people, could it be that in the end of time, God is looking for a people who will revive that same spirit of discipleship, of generation to generation? And notice again, the terminology is so so, uh, appropriate to that kind of fulfillment. Verse 6, And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children... To their fathers. So, in part, I believe, I would submit to you today that this, this anticipation of Elijah, this anticipation of an end-time people who are going to turn people to God, they're actually also turning hearts to each other. Hey, 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 hey. An old man, an old uh, you know, the, the more seasoned, what is it? Joel chapter two, verse twenty-eight and twenty-nine. Your old men shall dream dream. Your young men shall see visions. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Friends, this isn't isn't about uh, one generation looking this way. Hey, I'm I'm going that way. That's what I want. And then another generation saying, no, I I would rather do that. You know? This is about hearts turning to one another. You know, I, I wonder how it would look in a community of faith like this at Parkland. If the hearts of the fathers were truly turned to the hearts of the children, and the hearts of the children were truly turned to the hearts of the fathers, Someone reminded me of a phrase uh, recently, and uh, it kind of um, it kind of reflects maybe some 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 uh, old school or old guard thinking. Um, and actually, I hesitate to even say it now. <laughs> um, but the phrase was the children ought to be seen and not heard. Wow. And I pray the Lord that that wouldn't be a a mentality or an attitude that is concurrent here at Parkwood Church. Amen. You know, obviously there are certain contexts where you'd rather be seen and not heard. Okay, we understand. (laughs) But could it be that that kind of mentality seeps into our thinking where, you know what, The kids don't want to hang out with me. I'm I'm too old for that. The kids have no interest in what I would have to say. I I wouldn't sit with them at potluck. Uh, The kids wouldn't be interested in me joining their Sabbath school class because, you know, they just want to hear from themselves and they want to sing their own songs and things like that. Friends, don't underestimate the value of your experience. And so, let me speak to our olders, okay? (laughs) I'm going to kind of throw that term out, olders. That that is not necessarily olders in age, but olders in experience, okay? The children need you. And when I say children, I'm not just talking about children in age. I'm also talking about children in experience and spiritual maturity. Olders, the youngers need you. Now, let me speak to the youngers, okay? Okay? This includes youngers of age, this includes youngers of experience. Youngers, you don't have all the answers. And you know what? When the olders look your way because they hear something different, it's not because they're judging you, it's because they're concerned. And they have something to share with you. Olders, you may think that your experience is uh, is, uh, out of date, but you know what? There are youngers that are walking the same roads that you walked a few decades earlier and are making the same mistakes that you wouldn't want to make if you had the chance to, to do that road again, right? They need to hear what you've experienced. Why, why let them learn from their own mistakes, right? <laughs> let them learn from yours, too. Uh, I, I don't have the words to, to, to try to articulate exactly what, I, what I'm going for here. Okay, but my dream My dream is that we would see the fulfillment here at parkwood where the hearts of the fathers turn to the children And the hearts of the children turn to the fathers So how do we do this? How do we do this next week? We're going to talk a little bit about more of the practice of of making disciples in this way, but right now I think the key is turning of the heart Is your heart even turned that direction? Is your heart even open to being invested in someone who is older or younger? Is your heart even turned that way? Because if we we were to start talking about practical things, hey, when you want to make a disciple or if you want to be mentored by somebody, if you want to be a mentor, this is what you should do. But friends, if your heart isn't even turned that way, all that advice is just this, right? And so we're looking for hearts turning. When I was at camp meeting, I saw this, this presentation of, of a pastor who was preaching with a 12-year-old. I don't know, maybe, did, did you guys see that uh, on satellite? Oh, that was so powerful to me. They were preaching together, and, and they, they were talking specifically about this passage, and, you know, they kind of stood back to back, and they said, you know, sometimes we think this way, and they took a step away from each other, and sometimes we think this way, but you know what? God wants us to turn. Amen. God wants us to turn, and that requires a certain humbling, a certain humbling of ourselves. Youngers, that we don't have it all. Olders, confidence to know that your experience is of deep value. Even if we don't know how to take it, that's okay. (laughs) God wants our hearts to be turned. So today, let me just kind of throw out some applications. First, let's talk about... uh, turning of the hearts within the home, okay? Turning of the hearts within the home. Fathers and mothers, do not forsake your post. You may think it's too late, but it's not. The Lord has not come yet, okay? Fathers and mothers, do not forsake your post. Do all you can to turn that great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, Turn that great commandment into your daily experience. In your ordinary moments of the day, look for ways to teach the love of God. Okay? And next week, we'll talk a little bit more about some of these practices and stuff. But fathers and mothers, in your own household, don't forsake your post. Children, where are the children? (laughs) Children, you keep coloring along. No, I'm kidding. Um, Children, children, you hear... Look, your fathers and your mothers, they love you. So all of those efforts, maybe it doesn't sound right, maybe it sounds a little bit overbearing, but it's all because they love you, okay? Now, let's talk about turning of the hearts outside the home, whether it's generation of age or generation of experience. I lost my train of thought. (laughs) Go ahead, share with us, Tony. Yeah. Uh, as most of you know, I'm not a member of Parkwood yet, but I consider you all family. Mm. Last week during Sabbath, the elder to us, young ones here, because they're so much wiser in the faith yes. and the spirit invited yes. us into their homes as family. Amen. And we worship the Lord and we would just like to thank Wynn and Harold. Amen. Amen. Did you guys hear that? Okay, so this was last Sabbath. This is oh, fresh off the block. Awesome. Okay, <laughs> all right. Yes, amen. Okay, so there was a younger inexperience that needed an older inexperience and a natural relationship of mentorship developed. Yeah. In fact, I, I heard another story just at prayer meeting. Someone was saying, you know, a couple of Sabbaths ago, someone ran out to me and said, I want you to be my spiritual mentor. Wow, Yeah. Whoa, yeah. And she shared with me, the mentor, says, I've been so blessed by that. I have been the one being taught. Do you realize, friends, that this ought not to be the exception, but the norm? Turning of the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. Oh. Question today. Do you want your hearts turned? Do you want your hearts turned? Amen. Amen. You know, there are olders among us There are olders among us, and we need to make a commitment. Yes, I will be open to choosing and investing in a younger. Is that a decision, olders? You know, whether it's uh, olders in age or olders in experience, is that a decision that you are willing to make saying, yes, I will pray and ask God to lead me to someone that I can invest in? It doesn't have to be 27,000 someones. It ought to just be one, all right? Elijah, Elisha, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, Eli, you know, okay, this, anyways, you get it. So, olders, okay, if that's your desire, you you say, yes, I I recognize that in some capacity, whether biological or age or experience, I am a father, okay, I would like to pray that God would lead me to a son. Is that your desire? Let me just see some hands, yeah, amen, amen. Now, the youngers are just kind of looking around like, yes, okay? <laughs> all right. Now, let me ask youngers. Youngers, whether it's an age, whether it's an experience, youngers, will you have the humility to say, I don't have it all together. And I would really appreciate seasoned wisdom. Can I see some hands today? I'm raising three, okay? <laughs> Amen. Look, we are a generation. You know, uh, we often talk about generation to generation you kind of classify people and stuff and say, look, uh, oh, our kids, you know, they're, they're the future of our church. And you know, to some degree, that, that's I can understand that context, but do you know what that kind of says to the youngers? It says, wait your turn, right? When is that turn going to happen? Uh, it, you know, the thought crossed my mind, In some way, that's just saying that uh, the elders, you are the past of our church. What? No, 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 no. We are the church. (laughs) Amen. Okay? Amen. And so, friends, I want to see turning of the hearts of the fathers to the children, the children to the fathers. Would you just grab a hand of someone that's next to you? Maybe you don't even know them yet. (laughs) But just grab a hand, put your hand on a shoulder, and we're going to pray together. We're going to pray that God would turn our hearts. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this is a prophecy and a promise all wrapped up in one, and now we are praying it. God, would you please, in our experience, in our households, in our broader household of the Parkwood Church, oh, Lord, turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. I pray, God, that you would give us the wisdom and the tact to approach this kind of intergenerational mentorship and discipleship. I pray that you would give us the love and patience to work with one another, to talk with one another, to show love to one another, even if it's in little ways, just oft-repeated. Oh, Father, please turn our hearts And may we be a disciple-making family. We pray in Jesus' name. Let the family say, Amen. Amen. Amen.